0: Good morning and Namaskar, welcome to the Indian Podcast on Bharatvarsha and its stories. Hindu Society Under Seas by Sitaram Goyal Chapter 1 Significance of Hindu Society Hindu society is the only significant society in the world today which presents a continuity of cultural existence and functioning since time immemorial. Most other societies known to human history, East or West, North or South, have suffered a sudden interruption and undergone a traumatic transformation due to the invasion and victory of later-day ideologies, such as Christianity, Islam or Communism. The pre-Christian, pre-Islamic and pre-communist cultural creations of these societies are now only to be met in the libraries and museums, thanks to the labours of antiquarian scholars. Hindu culture can meet the same frightful fate if there were no Hindu society to sustain it. This is the point which is not always remembered, even by those who take pride in Hindu culture. There are many Hindus who cherish the great spiritual traditions of Hinduism and its scriptures like Gita and the Upanishads in which that tradition is enshrined but they do not cherish with an equal enthusiasm the Hindu society which has honoured and preserved these traditions and scriptures down the ages. Again, there are many Hindus who proclaim that their great confidence that Sanatana Dharma, that is Hinduism, can never die this is true in a sense. There will always be individuals in non-Hindu societies who will recover the mystique of Sanatan Dharma through their efforts at self-discovery. But Sanatan Dharma will surely suffer an eclipse and no more inform mankind at large with its message if there is no Hindu society to sustain it. Lastly, there are many Hindus who are legitimately proud of an Hindu art, architecture, sculpture, music, painting, dance, drama, literature, linguistics, lexicography, and so on. But they seldom take into account the fact that, they, that this great wealth of artistic, literary, and scientific heritage will die if Hindu society which created it is no more than to preserve it, protect it, and perpetuate it. But the death of the Hindu society is no longer an eventuality, which does not or cannot be envisaged. This great society is now besieged by some dark and deadly forces which have overwhelmed and obliterated many ancient societies, suffering from a loss in its land. It has become a house of divided within itself and its beneficiaries no more seem to be interested in its survival because they have fallen victims to hostile propaganda. They have never developed towards it an attitude of utter indifference. If not downright contempt, let no Hindu worth his salt remain complacent. Hindu society is in mortal danger as never before. It would be relevant to recall the history of Hindu society in order to put the record straight. For there is very little in that record which invites indifference or contempt, and a good deal which deserves honor and homage. A word about misunderstanding first. At one time, the dominant school of Western historians and their Indian disciples, from whom Hindu society commenced with Alexander's invasion, presented this history as a series of successful foreign invasions to which Hindu India invariably succumbed. They even invented an Aryan invasion of India in the second millennia BC to round up their cherished image of this country as some sort of a free-for-all which any adventurer could descend and dwell at will. The Aligarh school of historians have come out with the thesis that Hindu society being basically an oppressive and exploitative society, since its very inception, the invaders did not have to mount much of an effort in order to break whatever resistance it could muster at any time. The minority of oppressors, we are told, retired from fortified towns and citadels and majority of oppressed masses came out in support of the invaders who were hailed as liberators. The Marxist historian, in their turn, have welcomed this Aligarh approach with open arms. Their materialistic interpretation of history stands vindicated. They have extended the Aligarh thesis to mean that invaders were not only liberators of the social and political plane, but also great incentives to force of production. These foreign invasions, we are informed, were thus so many steps out of economic stagnation and towards material and social progress. It is little use crossing swords with the stalwarts inspired by Makkah and Moscow. It has been seen again and again that whatever be the facts, their conclusions remain the same. Their conclusions remain the same because their motives are the same. Their motives are to malign and misinterpret Hindu history in order to denigrate and destroy Hindu society. Now many Indians too have joined the game. Responsible Western historians have ever concede that Hindu history is very much older than the Alexander's invasion. They also concede that the theory of the Aryan invasion in India is at best a conjure for which there is no positive evidence, literary or archaeological. They admit further that the account which the Hindu gave of themselves in the face of foreign invaders have been quite creditable and by no means dishonorable, and they agree that whenever the Hindus suffered a defeat, it was largely due to their own neglect of and consequent inferiority in the art of warfare rather than any serious defect or deficiency in their social system or cultural milieu. There was a time not very long ago, when Hindu culture was a revered culture throughout the civilized world. If seers and sages, if mystics and monks, its scholars and scientists, its missionaries and merchants took its message to the farthest corners of the world, East Africa, Egypt and Utopia, Sumeria, Assyria, Babylonia, Cathalia and Iran, Burma, China, Japan, Korea, Mongolia, Indochina, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand, Pacific Islands, West Indies, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, Asia Minor, Central Asia, Greece, and Rome. The history of hundred cultures and nations provided evidence of this hoary heritage in this in their religious and philosophies, languages and literature, sciences and technologies, manners and mores. True. The Hindus never constructed a strong centralized state like that of the ancient Iran and Rome, which could tyran- tyrannize over its constituent unit and invade the neighboring countries. Yet their society was a strong, steadfast, and stupendous creation, based on the highly decentralized yet a cohesive social fabric made of organic two units, such as the clan, Kula, caste, Jati, village. Grama, Town, Nigam, Metropolis, Nagar, Country, Janapada, and Empire, Samraj. Imperials, Imperial systems rose and fell, but the infrastructure survived the test of time and remained vigorous and vibrant till the recent times. Greek historians who accompanied and followed Alexander tell us that before this adventurer led his short-lived raid against the Republic of Punjab and Sindh, only two other foreign invaders had had the courage to cast covetous eyes to India. Queen Semiriaris of Babylonia in the 8th century and Cyrus the Great of Iran in the 6th century BC attacked India with the vast armies but were defeated at the borders and made to flee with very few survivors, Plutarch leaves us with no doubt that Alexander himself had a, to beat a hasty retreat from the banks of River Bees, which baffled by the brave resistance from the series of small republics, their armies refused to cross, and this successor in East Seleucus Nicator, or Seleucus Nicator. Was soon humbled and not only made to cede conquered Indian territory, but also pay homage to Indian emperor by matrimonial alliance. But the wheel of time turns; the Hindus lost some of their vigor and vitality and vigilance. They neglected the art of warfare, which was acquiring new dimensions in the neighboring lands. The Scythians, the Kushanas and the Hunas, who stormed in after the degeneration or the deintegration of Mauryan and Gupta empires, did succeed in conquering and ruling over the large parts of the northern and western India. This spell of foreign rule, however, was rather short-lived. All these invaders were not only defeated by the rising tide of Hindu heroism, but also absorbed and integrated into the vast, complex Hindu society and culture. This trimful course of Hindu history suffered a severe setback only with the advent of the Muslim invaders in the middle of the 7th century AD. The Hindus were now faced with an adversary who was not only qualitatively superior in the art of warfare but also armed with an ideology which was altogether alien and uncompromisingly inimical to the basic premises of the Hindu West Strong. The war which the Hindus had to wage against the new adversary was ceaseless and long drawn out. The armies of the Arab Caliphate, which had humbled the Persian and the Byzantine empires, which had conquered the vast territory stretching from the Hindukush to the Atlantic Ocean, and which had converted to Islam vast population en masse, could not only advance beyond Sindh in spite of repeated invasions. The Ghaznavids, the Ghoris, the Khiljis, the Tughlaqs, the Mughals, who followed fared better and succeeded in establishing imperial dynasty which ruled over large parts of India for several centuries. But Hindu resistance did not cease for a day. The Rajputs, the Vijayanagar Empire, the Marathas, the Bundelas, the Jats, the Sikhs, rose to the fierce revolt one after another till the fabric of Muslim rule was destroyed and dispersed by the middle of 18th century and number of cowards which Islam considered its political power and intentions could win during its long spell of seven centuries was rather small. This victory of Hindus over the Islamic hordes could not only be consolidated due to intervention of British invader who wielded not only an unprecedented superiority in the art of warfare, but also a much subtler weapon of diplomacy. The Hindus were enslaved once again. The British also brought with them the form of Christianity and ideology, which too was altogether alien and intensely inimical to the trends or the basic tenets of Hindu way of life. Fortunately for Hindus, Christianity in the West including Britain was soon overwhelmed by the riding tide of humanism, rationalism and universalism inspired by the revival of Greek heritage. Christianity therefore could not obtain an unbridled sway in the councils of the British rulers as Islam was able to do in the courts of the Muslim kings. It was only under an earlier invader from the West, the Portuguese, that Christianity was able to harass Hindus for some time and in some areas. The struggle against the British invaders was also not a long drawn out as against the Muslim marauders. The rise of liberal democracy in Britain was a great help to the Hindu freedom fighters. Nonetheless, the battle had to be fought on many forms, revolutionary and constitutional, violent and non-violent. It is a point of some pride for Hindus that their struggle for freedom inspired similar struggles in many other countries of Asia and Africa, and that the The dawn of Indian independence in 1947 heralded an era of independence for many of an enslaved nations. A society which has survived invaders, who devastated and ultimately destroyed so many ancient societies, should now be rightly regarded as the wonder of the world's history? The foreign invasion of India have been brought into bolder relief by the very fact that Hindu society defeated and dispersed all of them in the final round. Only that the society can boast of freedom from foreign invasions which had lost its identity, body and soul into that of the conqueror? Such a society leaves no successor who retains a racial or cultural memory and who can spread out in national homage a role of honor for its heroes. With all its weakness, Hindu society has never been such an imbecile society. In the normal course, the Hindus have had such a glorious history, should have come into their own after 1947 and resumed their career anew of cultural creations. But balance sheets of this saga and struggle and sacrifice for freedom have not turned out to be favourable to the Hindus. They have lost to an alienated section of their own race some of the hallowed lands which were at a time of the very cradle of Hindu culture and civilization. And they are no longer honored citizens even in their own homeland. A permanent stigma seems to have stuck the term Hindu and Hinduism. These have now become a terms of abuse in the mouth of very elite which Hindu millions have raised to the pinnacle of power and prestige with their blood, sweat and tears. How did this happen? I have come to the conclusion that the Muslims and the British invasions of India though defeated and dispersed, yet managed to crystallize certain residues, psychological and intellectual, which a battered Hindu society is finding it difficult to digest. I emphasize and repeat, I have come to the conclusion that the Muslim and British invasions of India, though defeated and dispersed, have yet managed to crystallize certain residues, psychological and intellectual which a battered Hindu society is finding it difficult to digest. These residues are now in active alliance with powerful international forces and are being aided and abetted on a scale which an impoverished Hindu society cannot match. And lastly, although loggerheads amongst themselves, these residues have forged a united front which is holding Hindu society under seas. The danger is as much from within as from without. What are these residues of foreign invasions which are holding Hindu society under seas? The Muslim invasion of India crystallized one residue which we shall all name as Islamism. The British invasion on the other hand gave us two residues which we have named Christianism and Macaulism. We shall analyze their roles in India and their alliances with international forces, one by one, before we present a picture of the United Fund, which we have forged to fight the Hindus, which they have forged to fight the Hindus all long along. This was the end of the first chapter. Please stay tuned. Good evening and Namaskar. Welcome to the India Podcast on Bharat Varsha and its stories. Chapter 2 The Residue of Islamism The most malevolent of these residues is Islamism. The residue of Muslim invasion of India spreads over several centuries. Its basic tenets are ultimately derived from the teachings of Islam which has so far succeeded in sealing itself from every shade of empiricism. Rationalism, Universalism, Humanism, and Liberalism, the hallmarks of Hindu as well as modern Western culture. But in the context of India, where Islam failed in its mission of lasting conquest and total conversion, these tenets have acquired a singularly sinister and subversive character. Let it be clear that the reference here is not at all to our Muslim brethren who are our own flesh and blood, except for the microscopic minority that takes pride in the purity of its Arab, Persian and Turkish descent. Instead of being proponents of Islamism, the Muslims of India are its victim whom it is trying to use as a vehicle of poisonous virulence. The vast majority of Indian Muslims who are converted to Islam by force or allurement but the conversion did not help them socially or culturally, as their status today in India's Muslim society would amply prove. The Muslims of India, therefore, have to be freed from rather than accused of Islamism. What we mean by Islamism is a self-righteous psychology and a close cultural attitude which makes it impossible for its converts to coexist peacefully and in dignity with other people. There are many Hindus who share several tenets of Islamism. On the other hand there are many Muslims who are frightened by Islamism and would love to join the mainstream Indian nationalism if they are freed from the whip hand which a minority of theologians, politicians and hooligans had come to wield in their community. Those who want to know Islamicism first-hand and in full measure are referred to Sheikh Sir Muhammad Iqbal's two long poems which he wrote quite early in his career, and which earned for him the title of Allama among the adherents of his cult. These are the Shikwa and Jawabe Shikwa which Mr. Kushwant Singh has recently published in an English translation. The Shikwa ends by summing up that Nagmai Hind hai to Kya, le to Hizari Hui Meri. That is, no matter if my idiom is Indian, my spirit is that of Hijaz. Hijaz is that part of Arabia in which Mecca and Medina are situated. The Jawab-e Shikwa ends on a still more stringent note. Allah announces to Alama His supreme message for mankind in the following words: "Ki tu Muhammad se to te tere hai. That is, if you are faithful to Muhammad, I shall be faithful to you. Now there are many Muslims in India who have never heard of the name of Iqbal or listened to his muse. And there are many Hindus who have great admiration for the muse of Iqbal and it lies immeasurable. No Islamism does not refer to any particular section of Indian society. It refers to the intellectual or an intellectual attitude towards the award, the monopoly of truth and virtue to a particular prophet and consigns all knowledge to the pages of a particular book. Taking our cue from Allama Iqbal and his lesser cohorts like Altaf Hussain Hali, we can safely summarise the credo of Islamism in the following five fundamentals. First point, that Indian society before the advent of Islam was living in utter spiritual moral and cultural darkness, Jahiliya as they say, like pre-Islamic Arabia. Second, that Islam brought to India the only true religion, the only authentic moral values and the only humane culture and the only progressive social order. That this living mission of Islam in India could not be completed as in many other lands of Asia and Africa due to the intervention of the wily British who cheated Islam of its empire in India mostly by means of fraud. Fourth that while the creation of Pakistan had been a triumph and consolidation of the power of Islam, west of Ravi and east of Hughli, the conquest of India by Islam remains an unfinished task. Fifth, that Islam has a right to use all means, including force, to convert this Darul Harb of an Indian of an in India into Darul Islam so that Hukumat-e-Ilahiyya could be liquidated all traces of Jahiliya, and impose the law and culture of Islam. There are many Hindus like the late Pandit Lal who fully accept the first two fundamentals of Islam. It is a different matter that their logic fails them at this stage and they do not proceed to the next three fundamentals which will follow irrevocably. And there are many Muslims like late Rafi Ahmed Kidwai and Justice MC Changla who rejects their fundamental as repugnant. Having thus outlined its version of past Indian history and the apocalypse towards which future Indian history should be forced to travel, Islamism has involved a strategy in which Muslims of India are envisaged as a base and as an arsenal. Some features of this strategy can be outlined as follow. One, the muslim of india particularly the muslim intelligentsia should be sealed off from every shade of rationalism universalism humanism and liberalism and an army of mullah and maulvis trained in these tenets of islam should be let loose to brainwash and keep them along the right track two every muslim who does not accept islamicism or dares criticize it or strands for the mainstream of Indian nationalism away from other above religious differences should be denounced as a renegade and illegitimate victim of murderous Muslim mobs. Third, the Muslim should be encouraged to air as many grievances as can be invented and try to pass off as many downtrodden trodden minority oppressed, exploited and treated as second-class citizens by the brute Hindu majority. Fourth. These contrived grievances of Muslims should be used to convert the Muslim community into a compact vote bank which can be functioned as a balancing factor in many electoral constituencies as possible and which can blackmail all non-Islamist Muslim parties or political parties to accommodate Muslim candidates or include the maximum measure of concession to Muslim community in their election manifestos. Fifth the Muslims should be made to agitate for India's support to all international Islamic causes, right or wrong, legitimate or illegitimate, so that their attention is kept constantly diverted from demands of their own economic, social, and cultural conditions. The Muslims should progressively persuaded and prepared to state street riots on the slightest pretext. To be a be strapic or a music or before a mosque or Urdu or minority character of Aligarh Muslim University or a purely personal fracas between Tovs belonging to two communities or a bombing of Al Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem by an Australian. Adventuro, or the hanging of Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto by President Zia of Pakistan or the capture of Kaaba by some disgruntled faction of Saudi Arabian politics or some other similar events in the Islamic world at large. 7. The frequent riots should be used to frighten the Muslim, who should then be coaxed to create, consolidate, and extend exclusive Muslim enslaves which can be stoked with arms and ammunition, imported or otherwise. The seven-fold strategy is aimed at the Muslims in India who are to be brainwashed, blackmailed, frightened and forced into the fold of Islamism. Another side of the same strategy has been worked out to neutralize and paralyze and blacken or pamper different sections of Hindu society so that the road is clear for the forward march of Islamism. Some of the salient features of this secondary strategy can be outlined as follows the concept of secularism which is enshrined in the constitution of india and which has become most sacred slogan for all political parties should be distorted misinterpreted and misused to the maximum to block out the least little expression of hindu culture in the state apparatus and public life of india Second. The term communal and communalism, which have become a terms of abuse in Indian political parlance, should be carefully cultivated and more and more mystified to malign all those organizations, institutions and parties which do not serve Islamism directly and or indirectly. The accusations of being fascist and anti-secularist should be hurled at all those individuals, and organizations who question the exclusive claims of islam and its culture who know and tell truth about islamic scriptures and history and who see through the muslim game of grievance fourth all praise and support should be extended to those hindus who go out of their way to champion islamic causes national and international and who see in islam and its culture those higher values which islam claims for them fifth all available platforms should be used to defeat and frustrate the emergence of a genuine and positive Indian nationalism by always harping and India’s multiracial, multi-religious, multi-language, multinational and multicultural character. Islamicism did make some headway amongst the Muslims in independent India, mostly because of the dominant section of Hindu intelligentsia that patronized it for various reasons. The Congress politicians patronized it because they found out very soon that they were in a minority amongst Hindus, and they could survive in power only by combining a solid Muslim vote with whatever Hindu vote they could get. The socialists went out of their way to patronize it partly because they harbor an anti-Hindu animus and partly in a hope of securing Muslim vote, a hope which has not yet come anywhere near fulfillment. The Gandhian patronized it because they no more remembered that the great master Mahatma Gandhi was a Hindu with a profound faith in Sanatan Dharma and because they misunderstood his doctrine of non-violence towards all people including the Muslims of India as an endorsement of Islam. The communists patronized it because they saw it as a powerful ally in their campaign against Hindu society and they viewed as many as their main enemy. The self-alienated Hindu intellectual patronized it out of sheer animus towards Hindu society and culture, which they were out of damn on any pretext. Extending patronage to Islam thus became a pastime for those who wanted to pass off as large-hearted liberals and progressives and secularists. But in the absence of the local resources and international patronage, the progress of Islam in India was rather slow. Pakistan, which was in its only patron abroad could not provide much help beyond some hysteria in the mass media and propaganda in international political forum. The several wars which India was forced to fight with Pakistan to disadvantage of the latter also inhibited Islam in India from acquiring the requisite degree of self-confidence. The use of oil as a political weapon by Islamic countries and the influx of petrodollars is plenty from several Arab countries, particularly Libya and Saudi Arabia, since the early 70s have given Islamism in India a new blow of self-confidence in some sudden sweep. This influx of Arab Money is a natural and inevitable phenomena because in the last analysis, Islamism is only another name of Arab imperialism which had at one stage of its history pillaged and populated with its own progeny many foreign lands and which even today keeps many non-Arab nations spiritually enslaved. Islamism in India is now busy employing to the maximum advantage of Arab money and which is pouring in through many channels and is increasing quantities some of these uses are very obvious to the eye. The few salient features of the new scenario can be listed as follows. The rapid rise of power press, mostly in Indian languages and many publishing houses to propagate Islamism, the generous funding of old and founding many new maktabs, madrasas and institutes for teaching Islam and training missionaries who are then employed at high salaries for purifying the faith of Muslim flock and seeking new pastures to convert to Islam, buying of land and real estate all around the urban and rural areas of individual Muslim and Islamic institutions and organizations at whatever price is available, manufacturing and storing of arms in mosques, Muslim homes and localities, and training of Muslim staff. Holding of frequent conferences, national and international, and taking out demonstrations in support of every Islamic cause. Financing Muslim politics and inducing Muslim politicians to infiltrate and ingratiate themselves in every political party and functions from every public platform. Bribing secularist Hindu intellectuals, scribes, public workers and politicians, and buying them up for supporting Islamism, denigrating Hindu culture and character, assassinating those who oppose Islam. Using to the lore or using the lure of money for winning converts to Islam from the weaker sections of Hindu society, particularly Harijans. The strategy is nothing new. The self-same strategy had been used by Muslim League for carving out Pakistan. Only the aid and abetment which the British provided at one time had been replaced by aid and abetment from Arab countries. And in the matter of mere decade, Islamism in India has assumed the same menacing proportions as it had on the eve of partition. The parallel should make us pause. End of second chapter. Please stay tuned. Good evening and namaskar. Welcome to the India podcast on Bharat Varsha and its stories. Chapter 3. The Residue of Christianism The British rule in India crystallized two residues, Christianism and Macaulism. Certain strains of Macaulism developed what is euphemistically described as a revolutionary temper in the later stages of the British rule and joined hands with the Communism after the Bolshevik victory in Russia. The whole of Communism, which is also hostile to Hindu society and culture, is not Macaulism. Yet if Makaulism has not prepared the ideological ground, Communism could not have made the strides in this country. We shall analyze Christianism first. It was the first to make itself felt forcefully at the outset or on the onset of the British rule in India. We however wish to make it clear, at the very onset, that Christianism in India does not refer to the Christians in this country. They are our own people who at a certain stage of our history went over to a foreign faith in an atmosphere created and exploited by Christianism. But although they have renounced their ancestral faith, they have by and large not shown any marked hostility towards Hindu society and culture nor have they so far served as vehicle of Christianism except in certain areas of North notably Meghalaya, Mizoram and Nagaland. Christianism in India is centred in the numerous Christian missionaries operating all over the country, particularly in the so-called tribal belt. The eight fundamentals of Christianism in India may be summarized as follows. Listen patiently. One that Hindus have never had a saviour whose historicity can be ascertained, with the possible exception of Buddha. Second, that Jesus Christ, whose historicity cannot be questioned, has superseded all earlier saviours of Hinduism, if they were saviours at all and not disciples of Lucifer, and rendered superfluous all subsequent Hindu saints and sages. Third, That St. Thomas, an apostle of Jesus himself, was specifically chosen by the church to win India for his master's message. Fourth, that St. Thomas could not complete his mission in India because he met an untimely martyrdom at the hands of some Hindu, most probably Brahmin, heathens. Fifth, that the converts made by St. Thomas, the first, century christians of the south established beyond doubt that christianity is an ancient indian religion and not a western import as alleged by the hindus sixth that it is the sacred task of christian church to complete the mission of saint thomas and see it to that indians become a christian country once and for all seventh that if there is anything good and wholesome in Hindu religion, it is not because Hindu saints and sages ever made any direct or conscious contact with the truth, but because they merely stumbled upon some of it in the working of universal nature which was preparing itself over a long time by the advent of Jesus Christ. Eight that no Hindu, even if he follows the Ten Commandments in letter and spirit and lives by the Sermon on the Mount, can ever hope to escape eternal hellfire unless he has been baptized in a Christian church and administered the Christian sacraments. These tenets have their source in Christian religion which also, like Islam, is an extremely exclusive religion. Christianity too claims for itself a monopoly of truth And virtue swears by only one true God, our only true saviour or only son of the only true God, the only true revelation, the only true way of worship and so on. It has to, to its credit, a long and unrivalled record of wanton destruction of ancient religions and culture and a large-scale killing of heathens. The annals of Europe, Asia Minor, North Africa and America, particularly Central and South America provided harrowing details of the destruction and bloodshed. We in this country do not associate Christianity with misdeeds similar to those of Islam because British invaders who finally succeeded in capturing power in India did not allow the Christian crusaders to use state power directly or in an inhibited manner. They had perhaps become wiser by reading of Muslim history in India and did not allow their religion to interfere with the business of building a stable empire. A more tenable explanation of this British refusal to patronize Christianity among the point of no return is the renaissance in Europe which had considerably decredited this creed in its own homeland by the time British arms were triumphant in India. But we did have a taste of the intrinsic spirit of Christian aggression in our first encounter with the missionaries who swarmed towards our shores in the wake of Western victories from 16th century onwards. When the Portuguese seized Goa and adjoining territories, the Catholic Church lost no time in setting up an inquisition. For the benefit of native Francis Xavier, whom the Catholic Church hails as a patron saint of the East, expressed a deep satisfaction at the sight of 6,000 dead Muslims whom the Portuguese have slaughtered. He made no forcible conversions, demolished Hindu temples, smashed Hindu idols, and inaugurated that anti-Brahmanism which has by now become the sine qua non of all progressive thought and politics in India. The triumphal march of British arms in India in the second half of the 18th century convinced the Christian missionaries that British victories were not due or due not to superiority in the art of warfare but to the superiority of the Christian creed by which British generals and soldiers swore. They immediately started pouring venom on Hindu religion, culture and society. No lie was vile enough for the service of Christian truth; no fraud was foul enough in the service of the Christian virtue. An example will serve to illustrate the spiteful spirit of the Christian missionaries at that time. They spread a canard or rumor in India and abroad that many Hindu voluntarily rushed under the veils of the great chariot during the annual Ratha at Puri, and got themselves crushed to death in order to attain salvation. The great chariot, according to them, as always accompanied by droves of dancing girls who sang lascivious song and made obscene gestures towards crowd on both sides on the broad street. The great William Force who ruled the circle of Christian crusaders in Britain and also who adamantly advocated Christianization of India by an unstinted use of state power demanded immediately that temples of Jagannath be demolished to stop that devil dance for good. The British commissioner of Puri at that time saved the situation writing a long letter to the liberal British MP in which he stated that he along with many other British civilian in the district had been a regular visiting visitor of the Rath Yatra for 20 years but had never witnessed a single victim under the wheels nor found anything immodest in the songs and symbolic gestures of the dancing girls. The English word juggernaut, which according to the Chambers 20th century dictionary, means any relentless destroying force is a living witness to the inventive imagination of the early Christian missionaries. This campaign of calumny against every Hindu continued till late 19th century. Swami Vivekananda was referring to this crude campaign when he cried with anguish in the Parliament of Religions at Chicago that if we Hindus dig out all the dirt from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and throw it in your faces, it will be but a speck compared to what your missionaries have done to the religion and culture. Had not the Hindus come out in defence of this religion and culture, this missionary's mischief would have multiplied by leaps and bound. The Brahmo Samaj and the Arya Samaj were the earliest expression of this Hindu spirit of resistance. A notable contribution was made by Theophysical Society whose founder Madame Blatwiski exposed the spiritual and moral claims of Christianity and whose chief apostle in India Mrs. Annie Besant inspired no small pride in the Hindu heritage. The Ramakrishna mission also came to the rescue at a later stage. Mahatma Gandhi gave no quarters to Christian theology or to Jesus Christ as the only Son of God and Saviour of mankind. He had his own charming method of recommending sermons on the mount while showing compassion for the victims of missionaries who he described as Rice Christians. Perhaps the main reason for weakening of the malicious and mendacious campaign was collapse of Christianity in its own homeland. The West had taken a decisive turn towards the scientific spirit. Meanwhile, the message of Hindu spirituality has also spread to the centers of learning in West. The exponents of Hindu religion and the culture like Ramakrishna Paramhans, Swami Vivekananda, Sri Aurobindo, Raman Maharishi, Rabindranath Tagore, Anand Kumar Swami and Mahatma Gandhi were demonstrating by their words and deeds that the profound promise which Hindu dharma held for mankind, these missionaries had to change their methods. The core of Christianism in India, however, remains intact. They now know the fortress of Hindu society cannot be seized by frontal assaults. They are therefore busy in the backyards and have hidden themselves behind the smoke screen of several theologies. Some of the covert methods are listed follows. 1. Training of more and more native missionaries in the far-flung, well-equipped and fabulously financed seminaries so that the missionaries' work look no more like an undertaking mannered mostly by foreigners. Second, Hinduizing the outer accordment of Christian priests, liturgy and sacraments in order to convince the Hindus that Christianity is not only an imported creed and that Christianism is not out to corrode Hindu culture. I'll take a moment's pause here. If you have been vigilant of what's going in India today, you'll also see how missionaries to the same line are aligning themselves to everything that they say and hate. They dress like a Hindu saint. They talk like a Hindu saint. They practice magic which they were allergic to like a Hindu saint. Coming back to the book, point three. Directing their powerful press and publishing houses not to attack Hindu religions and culture openly, but to develop a scholarly and comparative critique of Hindu religion, culture, and society, always to eliminate disadvantage of the latter. To establish and extend educational institutions which can eliminate, immunize, upper-class Hindu children and youth against whatever Hindu ways still survive in their homes wherever they do not succeed in attracting them towards christianity fifth to build and expand hospitals and undertake other social works in order to attract all-round respect for the christian spirit of social service and neutralize as narrow by gaudry any questioning of their missionary motives sixth to open orphanages and homes for the handicapped where polyesterization can proceed safely and unnoticed to concentrate on Hindu Tribals who are removed from the main centres of Hindu population so that there is no on-toward publicity. To take out promising candidates for conversion as prolonged tours to Western countries in order to impress upon them the wonders worked by the Christian culture and civilization. Ninth, to encourage well to do and willing Christians in the West to adopt boys and girls of poor Indian families, send them to missionaries and schools and colleges and provide them with the monetary assistance. They then get converted. Tenth, to finance and promote political campaign for separate states inside or outside the Union of India in those areas where Christian population has attained majority or in dominance. There are plenty of methods which the missionaries employ to harangue you and or hoodwink the unsuspecting Hindus. Some of these methods are petty crude, especially those employed by the American missionaries who aim to be loud and simplistically promise. You also can be saved, or sweet scolding, don't you want to save yourself? through big advertisements and daily newspapers, regular radio broadcasts, and door-to-door peddlers of salivation, the other methods are sophisticated and distinguished or disguised as Hindu theology. But what looms large by the back of all these methods is the mammoth finance that flows in freely from the coffers of Christian churches and communities in Europe and America. An idea of the magnitude of this finance can be got from the recent incident, which was widely reported in the daily press. An imaginative and enterprising but poor South Indian palmed off a Christian missionary a lot of faked literally and archaeological evidence about the adventures of St. Thomas in South India against a cash payment of 15 lakh rupees, a paltry sum to the total budget of the mission concerned, and there are hundreds of such missions in India. A statesman dated 17th August 1981 has published interesting news items from Assachen in Germany. The Nobel Prize winner Mother Teresa had asked her supporters to suspend charity donations, reports UNIDPA. The German section of the International Association of Friends of Mother Teresa, which donated 6 million marks in 1980, is to be disbanded at the end of the year in response to the plea. Mother Teresa, who won the prize in 1979 after years of work aiding the poorest of the poor, called the temporary halt to the contributions until we have used up what we have. I will then ask you again, the founder of Missionaries of Charity said in a circular. Excessive support of a singular charity leading to needs of thousands of others being forgotten was probably behind the request. Emphasis added. Six million West German marks amount to approximately two and a half crores of rupees. The amount contributed at the section of International Association of Friends of Mother Teresa are most likely to total up many times this sum. Mother Teresa is not in a position to use all the money that has already been given to her, so the torrent had been halted temporarily. It will start pouring again as soon as the signal is given and hers is only one of the thousands of other charities, one can well imagine the staggering finance at the disposal of Christianism in India. The free flow of Western wealth enables the missionaries to live in and have at their disposal palatial mansions in which their missions and seminaries are housed. Their vow of poverty never comes in the way of having modern sanitation facilities, kitchen, communication and transport. They can travel only, not only over the length and breadth of this country but at the ends of the earth to attend conferences, congregations, seminars and symposia. Have you ever thought where the money comes from? Every day they go, they can stay in similar some style. It is how human or it is but human if the superiority of their style is living gets confused with the superiority of the Christian creed. Recently, some missionaries, particularly in the Catholic missions, have started talking a new language, the language of radicalism and revolution. It is not often, or it is not unoften, that this language comes most easily in those who do not have the share, who do not have, to share the woes and wants of people with whom they commensurate. They make the best of both worlds. Our communist leaders are an excellent example of some synthetic radicalism. The West had lost its fascination for the faith. It is becoming increasingly difficult to find men and women in the West who would take their holy orders and become wedded to vow of chastity, poverty and obedience. But the West does not mind parting their plenty of cash which is pro- prosperity can spare with ease. Christianity is therefore making a bold bid to establish a safer heaven in East while going is good. India provides a particular soft target. Christian missions are welcome to open their purse strings in the Islamic and communist countries of Asia. But the missions there are barred from winning new converts. Hindu India drowned in poverty and suffering from the cultural self-forgetfulness is the only country in Asia which provides quid pro quo. We come to the end of chapter three. Stay tuned. Good evening and Namaskar. Welcome to the Indian Podcast on Bharatwarsha and its stories. The Residue of Macaulism Now for the second residue of British rule, Macaulism. The term derives from Thomas Babington Macaulay, a member of Governor-General's Council in the 1830s. Earlier, the British government of India had completed a survey of the indigenous system of education in the presidencies of Bengal, Bombay and Madras. A debate was going on whether the indigenous system would be retained or a new system introduced. Macaulay was the chief advocate of the new system. This, he expected, will produce the class of Indians brown in skin, but English in taste and temperament. The expectation has been more than fulfilled. There is a widespread impression among educated classes in India that this country had no worthwhile system of education before the advent of British. The great universities like those of Takshashila, Nalanda, Vikramshila and Udantipuri had disappeared during Muslim invasions and rules. What remained, we are told, were some of the parshalas in which a rudimentary instruction in arithmetic and reading and writing was imparted by semi-educated teachers, mostly to the children of the upper castes, particularly the Brahmins but the impression is not supported by known and verifiable facts. Speaking before the select audience at Chatham House in London, on October 20th, 1931, Mahatma Gandhi had said, I say without fear of figures, being successfully challenged that India today is more illiterate than it was 50 or 100 years ago. And so is true for Burma. Because the British administrators, when they came to India, instead of taking hold of things as they were, began to root them out. They scratched the soil and began to look at the root and left the loot like that and the tree became perished. What Mahatma had stated negatively, that is, in terms of illiteracy, was documented positively, that is, in terms of literacy by a number of Indian scholars, notably Sridholat Ram, in the debate which followed the Mahatma's statement with Sir Phillips Hartog, an eminent British educationist, on the other side. Now Shri Dharampal, who compiled India's science and technology in the 18th century, some contemporary European accounts in 1971, had completed a book on the state of indigenous educations in India on the eve of of the British conquest. Sridharampal has documented from the British archives, particularly those in Madras, that the indigenous system of education compared more than favorably with system obtaining in England at about the same time. The Indian system was admittedly in a state of decay when it was surveyed by British collectors in Bengal, Bombay and Madras. Yet, As the data brought up by them proved conclusively, the Indian system was better than English system in one number of schools and colleges proportionate to the population, the number of students attending the institutions, the duration of time spent in school by the students, the quality of teachers, the diligence as well as intelligence of the students, the financial support needed to see the students through school and college, the high percentage of lower class Shudra and other caste students attending these schools as compared to the upper class, Brahmin, Kshatriya and Veshya students, and eight in terms of subject taught. This indigenous system was discarded and left to die out by the British, not because of its educational capacity, but inferior was inferior, but because it was not thought fit for serving the purpose they had in mind. The purpose was, first, to introduce the same system of administration in India as was obtaining in England at the time. The English system was highly centralized, geared towards maximization of state revenues, manned by gentlemen who despised the lower classes and were therefore ruthless in suppression of any mass discontent. Secondly, the new system of education aimed at promoting and patronizing a new Indian upper class who in turn would hail the blessing of the British Raj and cooperate in securing its stability in India. This indigenous system of education was capable neither of training any administrators nor raising such a social elite not at home anywhere. The system of education introduced by the British performed more or less, as Macaulay has anticipated. Hindus like Bankim Chandra Chatterjee, Swami Vivekanand, Lokman Tilak, Mahatma Gandhi, Mahamana Malveer, V. Savarkar, Sri MS Worker, to name most or only few notable amongst those who escaped its magic, spell and rediscovered their roots, were great soul. Strong enough to survive the heavy dose of deliberate denationalization, for the rest, it had eminently succeeded in sweeping an ancient and highly cultured off its feet. Macaulay does deserve the honor of whole ism, or ism, of which we have not seen the last yet. It is not easy to define the doctrine of Macaulayism in an, in as authentic terms as we would do in case of Islamism or Christianism. Doctrinally, Macaulism is quite diffused. It does not wear by a historical prophet whom it proclaims as the latest as well as the last and the best. It does not bestow a monopoly of truth and wisdom of a single book. It does not lay down a single code of conduct distilled from the doings of a prophet and the sacerdotal traditions of the church. Nor is Macaulism malevolent like Islamism or mischievous like Christianism. It is rather mild and well-meaning, more like an imperceptible breeze which blows in silently, fills up the psychological atmosphere and creates a mental mood, inspires an intellectual attitude and finally settles down as a cultural climate, pervasive, protean and ubiquitous. Unlike Islamism and Christianism, McCallism does not employ any meticulously matured methods to propagate and proliferate itself. It is not out to use a specified section of Indian society as a vehicle of virulence. It is not a potent portion like Islamism which destroys the body of a culture in which or in one fell sweep. It is not subtle like Christianism which which subverts a society surreptitiously but at the same time it is creeping toxemia which corrodes the soul of a culture and corrupts a social system in slow stages and its target in every section of indian society yet we survey the spread of its spell over hindu society particularly hindu intelligentsia we can spot some of its paralyzing processes the most prominent are the following 5 Second, a positive if not worshipful attitude towards everything in Western society and culture, past as well as present. In the name of progress, reason and science, nothing from the West is to be rejected unless it is first been weighed and found wanting by the Western evaluation. Third, an intellectual inclination to compare Hindu ideals and institutions from the past not with their contemporaneous ideals and institutions in the West, but with what West has achieved in its recent history, the 19th and 20th centuries. Fourth, a mental mood to judge the West in terms of the ideals and utopias it proclaims from time to time, while judging the Hindus with an all-too-sucrupulous reference to what prevails in Hindu society and culture at the present time when the Hindus have hardly emerged from the long period of struggle against the foreign invasions. fifth, A psychological propensity to scrutinize, interpret and evaluate Hindu culture, history, society and spirituality with the help of the concept and tools of analysis evolved by the Western scholarship, it is never granted that the Hindus do have a well-developed concepts and tools of analysis derived from their own philosophical foundations, that it would be more profitable to use these concepts and tools of analysis for a proper understanding of a Hindu heritage, and that it is less than fair to employ alien and incompatible methods of evaluation while judging this heritage. If the Hindus use their own concepts and tools of analysis to progress and weigh the Western heritages, Our Macaulists always throw up their hands and denounce the exercise as unscientific and irrelevant to the universe of discourse. The intellectual and cultural fashion and fads of our Macaulists change as freely and frequently as intellectual and cultural climate in the West. Now it is the English utilitarianism, now the German idealism, now Russian nihilism, now French positivism and existentialism. Now American consumerism, whatever be the dominant trend in the West, it immediately find its flock among the educated Hindus. But one thing remains constant. The platform must first be prepared in the West before it could and should find the audience in India. And this process of approving, rejecting, judging, and justifying which McCallism promotes among its Hindu protagonists does not remain a mere mental mood or an intellectual inclination or a psychological propensity, that is to say, a subjective stance on men and matter. It inevitably and very soon expresses itself as a whole lifestyle which goes on rejecting and replacing Hindu mores and manners indiscriminately in favor of those which the West recommends as the latest and the best. The land which the new styles of life are imported may be England as up to the end of Second World War or the United States of America as ever since, but it must always be ensured that the land is located somewhere in the West Hemisphere, foreign, is always fine. The models which are thus imported from the West in ever increasing numbers need not have any relevance to concrete conditions obtaining in India, such as her geography, climate, economic resources, technology, talents, administrative ability, etc. It is important if the important model fails to flourish on the Indian soil and in the India's ecosystem of cultural conditions. These must be beaten and forced into as much of a receptive shape as possible, if need be, by ruthless use of state power. But if the respectable remains imperfect, even after all these efforts, let the finished product reflect the imperfections. A model imported from the West and implanted on Indian soil even in half or a quarter is always preferable to any indigenous design involved in keeping with the native needs and adaptable or and adapted to local conditions. Starting from the secular and socialist state and planned economy, traveling through a casteless society and scientific culture, and arriving at day-to-day consumption in Hindu homes, we witness the same surreal scenario unfolding itself in an end-endeavor our parliamentary institutions our public and private enterprise our infrastructure of power and transport our medicine public health housing our crockery table manners even the way we gesticulate grin and smile have a carbon copies of what currently doing in the west drain pipes well bottoms long hairs drooping moustaches girls dressed up in jeans parents being addressed as a mom and pa and mummy and daddy, demand for convent schooling and matrimonial ads and natives speaking their mother tongues is in accent after the English civilian who had helpless to do otherwise. These are perhaps some small, insignificant details which would not have mattered if the Hindu had retained pride in more substantial segments of their cultural heritage. But in the current context of no-towing before the West, they are painful potents of a whole culture being forced to feel inferior and go down the drain. The Hindu may sometimes need to feel some pride in his ancestral heritage, particularly when he wants to overcome this sense of inferiority in the presence of visitors from the West Macaulism will gladly permit him that privilege provided Kalidasa is admired as the Shakespeare of India and Samudra is certified as the India's Napoleon. The Hindu is permitted to take pride in the piece of native literature which some western critic has lauded. Of course the Hindu should read it in its English translation. He is also permitted to praise those specimens of Hindu architecture, sculpture, painting, music, dance and drama, which some connoisseurs from the West have patronized, preferably in an exhibition or performance before a Western audience. But he is not permitted to do this praising and pride-taking in native language, nor in an English which does not have an accepted accent. The Hindu who is thus addicted to Makaulism lives in a world of his own, which has hardly any contact with the traditional Hindu society. He looks forward to day when India will become a society like societies in the West where the rate of growth, the gross national product and the standard of living are only criteria of progress. He is tolerant towards religion to the extent that it remains matter of private indulgence and does not interfere with the smooth unfoldment of a socio-political scene. Personally, for him religion is irrelevant, though some of its ritual and festivities can occasionally add some colour to life. For the rest, religion is so much obscurantism, primitive superstition and in Indian context at present a creator of communal riots. It should not therefore be surprising if this self-forgetful, self-alienated Hindu who often suffers from an incurable anti-Hindu animus Allah Nira Chaudhry, turns his back upon the Hindu society and culture and becomes indifferent to their fate. He cannot help having not much patience with the traditional Hindu who is still attached to his spiritual traditions, who flocks to hallowed places of pilgrimage who celebrates his festival with solemnity, who regulates his daily life with ritual and sacraments, who honours his forefathers, particularly the old saints, sages and heroes, he also cannot help being indulgent towards those who are hostile to the traditional Hindu and who heap contempt and ridicule on him, no matter to what community of faith they belong, though he may not share their own variety of religion or ideological fanaticism. The traditional Hindu, on the other hand, wants to live live in peace and amity with all his compatriots. He is normally very tolerant towards his Muslim and Christian countrymen and gladly grants them the right of their own way to worship. He goes further and quite often upholds Muslim and Christian religion as good as his own. He shows all due respect to Muslim and Christian prophets, scriptures and saints. He does not try to prevent anyone from feeling discussing dissenting even ridiculing his religion and culture he never mobilizes murders mob against those hindus who do not share his convictions about his ancestral heritage he turns a blind eye towards gods and goddesses being turned into cheap models and calendars and commercial advertisement nor does he go out converting people of other faiths to his own the traditional hindu however does not gets stirred when Muslim and Christian across the limits and threaten the unity and integrity of his country. He does want to retain his majority in the only homeland against Muslim and Christian attempts to reduce him to a minority by fraudulent mass conversion. He does believe that Hindu society and culture have a right to survive and put up some defense in exercise of that right. But the Hindu addict of Macaulism stubbornly refuses to concede that right to Hindu society and culture, he cannot see the need for defence because he cannot see the danger and he has many strings to his bow to run down the Hindu who dares defies his diktat. His attitude can be summarized as follows. To start with, he refuses to recognize any danger of Hindu society and culture even when irrefutable facts are placed under his nose. He accuses and denounces as alarmist, communalist, chauvinist and fascist all those who give a call for self-defense to Hindus. Better, he explains away the aggression from the faith in terms of aggression which Hindu communalism has committed in the first instance. Next. He paints a pitiful picture of the aggressor as a poor, deprived, and drowned or minority whom the Hindus refuse to recognize as equal citizens constitutionally entitled to just share in national cake. Third, at a later stage he assumes sanctimonious airs and assigns to the Hindus an inescapable moral responsibility to rescue their less privileged brethren from the plight into which the Hindus have pressed them. In any case, the Hindu stands to lose nothing substantial if they make some generous gestures to their younger brethren, even if the latter were slightly wrong. Fourth, in the next round, he harangues the Hindus that any danger to them if ideally real and worth worrying about, arises not from the external aggression against them, but from the injustice and oppression in their own social system which derives away its less privileged sections towards other social systems based on better premises and promises. Does not Islam promise any equality of social status amongst its great ideals of brotherhood to men? does not christianity present an example of dedicated social service Allah, the teresa fifth if the hindus are not convinced by all these arguments and become bent upon organizing some sort of self defense he becomes he comes out with a foolproof formula for that eventuality as well the hindus are advised to put their own house in order which is or which, in his opinion, is the best defense they can put up. They should immediately abolish the caste system, start inner-dining and intermarrying between the upper and the lower caste, particularly the Harijans, and so on and so forth. If it never occurs to him that the social reform is a slow process, which takes time to mature and that, in the meanwhile, a society is entitled to self-defense and in the interest of its sheer survival. Sixth, If the Hindus still remain adamant, he tries his last and best ballistics upon him. He suddenly puts up a spiritual mask and lovingly appeals to Hindus in the name of their own long traditional of religion tolerance. How can the followers of Gautama and Gandhi descend to the same level of Islam and Christianity which have never known religious tolerance? The Hindus would cease to be Hindus if they also start behaving like the followers of Semitic faith which have been conditioned differently due to historical circumstances of their birth, but he never dares put in a single word of advice to the followers of Islamism and Christianism to desist from always having in their own way. He knows it in his bones that such an advice will immediately bring upon his head the same abusive acquisitions which Islamism and Christianism hurl at the Hindus. This is the outcome which he dreads worse than death. He cannot risk his reputation of being secular and progressive which Islamism and Christianism confer upon him only so long as he defends their triads against the Hindus. But the stance which suits McCallism best is to sit and fences, sit on fences, and call a plague on both houses. The search for fairness and justice is somehow always too strenuous for a follower of McCallism. The one thing he loathes from the bottom of his heart is taking sides in a dispute, even if he is privately convinced as to whom is the aggressor and who is the victim of the aggression. He views the battle as disinterested outsider and finds it somewhat entertaining. The reports and reviews which some of our eminent journalists have filed in the daily and the periodical press about happenings in the Meenakshi Purim and other places where Islamism is again on the prowl, leaves an unmistakable impression that these gentlemen are not members of Hindu society but visitors from some outer space on a temporary sojourn to witness a breed of lesser beings fighting without tweedalendum and tweedalendi. An adherent of Macaulism can always afford to take this neutral, even hostile stance away from and above Hindu society, its problem and its struggles because in the last analysis, he no more regards Hindu society as his own or as his indispensable benefactor. He has already managed to monopolize most of the political and administrative power in his country and the best jobs in business and professions. He has secured strangleholds on the most prestigious publicity media, the political upstarts and the neo-rich look upon him as the paragon and try to mould their sons and daughters to his image. But what is uppermost in his mind is not his conscious calculation Is the plenty of patrons protectors and paymasters he has in the west particularly in the united states of america the scholars and social scientists over there in the progressive west approve and applaud whenever he pontificates about india's socio-economic cultural malaise and prescribes the proper occidental cures They invite him to international seminars and on well-paid lecture tours to enlighten Western audiences about the true state of things in this unfortunate country and the rest of the underdeveloped world. He can travel extensively in the West with all the expensive paid in the lavish scale. Even in this country, he alone is entitled to move and establish the right contacts and social circles frequently or frequented by the powerful and prestigious from the West. And God forbid, if the worst comes to the worst, the fanatics like arsist fascists, or the Muslim fundamentalists, or the communist totalitarians take over this country, he can always find a safe refuge in the Western country or the other. There are plenty of places which can use this talent of to mutual profit. The salaries they pay and the expensive accounts or the expenses account they allow are quite attractive. The level of living with all these latest gadgets is simply lovable. In any case, he has all the sons and daughters, nephews and nieces, cousins and close relative unconcerned in all those cushy jobs over there, the UN agencies, the fabulous foundations, the business corporations, the universities and research institutions. So Hindu society with all its hullabaloo of religion and culture be damned. The society, and not he, stands to lose if he is permitted to work out of his plans for progress in peace. In any case, the society cannot pay even for his shoes getting polished properly. With this we come to the end of the fourth chapter. I hope that you will ask other people to listen and subscribe. Thank you.